Good afternoon, congregation. We would like to extend a warm welcome to all who are worshiping with us today, including those online. We pray that we may be blessed as we worship the Lord together. Consistory has the following announcements. The Lord willing, there will be a combined Good Friday service together with the Maranatha congregation beginning at 10 a.m. in this building. The collection of Good Good Friday will be taken for Redemption Prison Ministry. The collections today will be gathered for the work of the deacons to distribute to those in need both within and outside of congregation. The young people will meet this evening at the Hoogstraat. Again this afternoon, we welcome our pastor Jeremy Sechtro, who will be leading us in worship. Good afternoon, congregation. What a blessing it is to gather not just once, but even twice for worship on this Lord's Day. Our God calls us into worship with these words taken from Revelation chapter 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride ordained, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you are able, please rise for worship. Citizens of the New Jerusalem, from where does your help come? Receive his greeting. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. Mighty ones your homage bring to the Lord the awesome King. These mighty ones include the great angelic beings that currently rule, but one day will not, as we heard this morning. They include the power of creation, like the sea and the thunderstorms, and they include mighty nations as well, these mighty ones. All their might, all their power in the service of our God and his church. Let's sing Psalm 29, all three stanzas.
please bow with me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, eternal King, we come before you acknowledging that we are in the presence of the mighty ones. There is a spiritual world, a spiritual dimension all around us, invisible but not empty. Spiritual forces are all around us, and each one of them ultimately serve your purpose. Whether joyfully as angels or unwillingly as demons, even their rebellion is in your hands, controlled and limited and turned by you for good. We are in the presence of the Mighty Ones, but far more importantly, we are in your presence, the Mighty One, the Awesome King. If the angels will worship, so will we. If the nations will worship, so will we. If the creation all around us worships, so will we. We will worship together as the church, for that is who we are. This is who you created us and then recreated us to be, your church. We pray that you will bless us this afternoon as your church in this place, as we do what the church is supposed to do, gather together, sing praise, coming before you in prayer, bringing our offerings, sitting under the preaching. We thank you for who you are and for who you have made us to be and are still making us to be. We love you. We adore you. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of the Church. Amen. In connection with our confessional reading this afternoon, please turn with me in Holy Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. seems we are receiving a lot from 1 Corinthians recently. And honestly, I'm as surprised as you are. There's no secret agenda here to make 1 Corinthians your new favorite book of the Bible. But instead, we will see how this chapter fits so well with the doctrine of the church as we confess it in the Heidelberg Catechism. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her? For as is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So far our reading. Now, in response to our reading and in preparation for uh, our reading from the Catechism, 
Let's sing from Psalm 87, a wonderful psalm about the church and who belongs in the church. Let's sing Psalm 87, the first three stanzas. Just a brief reflection on one aspect of this psalm. I believe I've mentioned this before, but it's good to mention it again. And remember, look at the different nations that the psalmist brings up here. Egypt, Babylon, Cush, Philistia, and Tyre. Every single one of those nations, an enemy of Israel, one day brought in. Every nation, every tribe will be brought in. But it's important to remember, even the enemies cannot outsin the grace of God. In our confessional reading, we have now come to Lord's Day 21, so please turn there with me, page 535 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism is all about the church, the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. All three of these relate to the body, the bride, the city that our Lord is building. So let's read Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself, by his spirit and word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers all and everyone as members of Christ have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God will... I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I have to struggle all, against which I have to struggle all my life, 
but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. After the sermon, we will sing our Amen song of Psalm 133, both stanzas. May God bless the preaching of the truths of his word. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, who is the church? Now you might wonder if this is the right question to ask. Is this really a who question rather than a what question? What is the church? This feels more accurate. And asking what is the church, that's, that's not a wrong question to ask. This is a question that has been asked and answered many times throughout history and even in scripture. The what question is a valuable one. What is the church? Well, the church is the bride of Christ. Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ. What is the church? The church is a tree. Romans 11, an olive tree that God cultivates, pruning and grafting in branches. Church is also a vine. John 15, where Christ himself is the main part of the vine and we are the branches that grow from him. These are just some of the metaphors in scripture that are used. And then theologians will point to the church as organism and the church as organization. There's truth to both of these as well. A church is an organization in that Christ has ordained order in his church through the office bearers. There are elders, there are deacons, there's a minister. There's a hierarchy, you could say, but it's a hierarchy of only two levels. There's Christ, and then there's all of us. Christ, and Christ alone, rules the church. The elders, the deacons, the minister serve the church. Only Christ rules. But the church is also an organism. The church is living. The church is growing. Now, sometimes it's it's great theologians that say it best, but other times the simple wisdom of a children's song really puts it clearly. The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is not a resting place. The church is a people. And so even though what is the church is a fine question, a question that can lead to us... A, that can lead us to real and wonderful theological truth, that's not where we're going this afternoon. That's not what we're going to examine together. But instead, in line with the children's song, the church is a people, we're going to ask, who is the church? Who exactly is this people called the church? Well, we'll see based on both our confession and and scripture that this people called the church are forgiven sinners, beloved misfits, And finally, united saints. Who is the church? Well, we are a people made up of forgiven sinners. In our Lord's Day this afternoon, there's there's a connection that might not be immediately obvious upon a first reading, or a second reading. It was not immediately obvious to me until this past week, even having taught the Lord's Day for several years, It was not immediately obvious to me the last time that I preached on Lord's Day 21 on this pulpit. The last time we were at Lord's Day 21 together, I split up this Lord's Day into two parts, into two sermons. First of all, we examined together question and answer 54 and 55, together in one sermon, the Holy Catholic Christian Church and the Communion of Saints. Those fit together very well, of course. And then saved for the next sermon, the forgiveness of sins. And there are two reasons that I had done it that way. One good reason and one bad reason. The good reason for the split was because of the enormity of the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness is such a difficult thing. Forgiveness is something that is done so poorly by all of us. It was worthwhile to spend an entire sermon on that topic. It would be worthwhile to spend an entire sermon series on the topic. I certainly did not exhaust it in the sermon where I spoke of forgiveness being costly and forgiveness being unthinkably difficult. So that was the good reason why I split up the two. 
The bad reason is because I didn't see the connection between these two doctrines. At least I didn't see it as clearly as I should have. There was a concern in my mind that connecting these two doctrines together, the doctrine of the church on one hand and the doctrine of forgiveness on the other hand, connecting them together might make us trend towards Roman Catholicism, where forgiveness is sought from a priest in a booth rather than directly from God in heaven. The connection of the church and forgiveness that I saw was only a dangerous connection. The church is where you go to get forgiveness rather than you go to God to get forgiveness. But I was wrong. The connection is not found in the idea that the church is the one who forgives, but rather the connection is there that we, as the church, are those who are forgiven. The church is the body of the redeemed. The church is the body of the forgiven. So who are we, beloved? Who are we? A few weeks ago, I I said the following in relation to our identity as a church, hijacking a quotation from a popular movie. Some of you recognize that. This is what I said. I said, are we not king's men on a mission for the king? A mission of love, a mission of mercy. We are, as scripture so powerfully declares, as our catechism so comfortingly begins with, we are not our own but we belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are king's men. We are here on a mission for the king. That's who we are as the church. We have status. Each and every one of us belongs to Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us, claimed already in the womb, publicly shown to be claimed by baptism, we belong. We are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. I have to remember this because it might be tempting to refer to ourselves as nothing. It might seem to be the humble and the righteous thing to call ourselves nobodies. But we're not nothing. We're not nobodies. There's a song, a popular song, a wonderful song in a lot of ways, by the Christian group Casting Crowns called Nobody. And I love this song, but we have to adjust it a little, because as it stands, it's not quite accurate. This is how the chorus goes. It says, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. You know me, I'm I'm a sucker for wordplay. I love the poetry and the writing here of this song. There's nobody, and then there's everybody, and then there's somebody. But that's not the full picture, is it? Let's look at our reading. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the turn. Here's the shift. Here's one of the most wonderful and comforting statements in the Bible. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is another but God statement. You were this way. You were nobodies. In fact, you were worse than that. You were dead in your sins. You were deserving of hell and damnation and judgment. You were in a place where you would not inherit the kingdom of God. But, and of course this is a but God, God is the one at work here, but you were washed. It's not primarily speaking of the waters of baptism, but rather what they represent. You were washed clean with the blood of Christ. You were sanctified. You were counted as holy. You were justified. You are counted as righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As the church, we were no better than anyone else. As the church, we are no better than anyone else in our own strength. As Martin Luther was fond of saying, he said, we're all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. But here's the thing. And don't misunderstand me. Don't take this quote out of context and run with it. We were no better than anyone else before we were called. We still are, in our sinful nature, no better than anyone else. We didn't cause God to call us. 
But are we, as the church, are we different? Are we distinct? Are we, understanding the limitations of this word, are we better than those outside the church? Well, in the sense that we are those who are washed, in the sense that we are those who are justified, in the sense that we are those who are sanctified, yes, absolutely we are. To use Luther's metaphor again, though we are beggars, we are beggars who have been fed. Any beggar can be fed. This is available for anyone. No one can outsin the grace of God. Not Egypt for having Israel in slavery. Not Babylon for taking them into, into exile. Anyone can be fed. Nobody can outsin the grace of God. The church doors are open and we must welcome everyone in. Everyone can be forgiven. The church right now, we are those who already have been forgiven. And in that sense, in only that sense, we are different. We are distinct. We are better. Now, just before we move to our second point, let's briefly read what the Catechism teaches us about the forgiveness of sins, because the wording is quite wonderful. I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, that is, his work on the cross, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life. Though we are, and in some ways we remain beggars, this isn't how God sees us. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross was so definitive, it was so powerful, that even though we still sin, even though our sinful nature is alive and active, God considers it to be dead. He has thrown our sins into the heart of the sea, Because we are his beloved bride, washed clean. The the great multitude in Revelation 7, dressed in white garments, washed clean in his blood, this is us already. The blood has already washed us clean. As we heard this morning, we are in Christ. There is a difference. He will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. Not only does God take away our weakness and our evil, but he gives us the strength and the righteousness of Christ. We are, you can, you can think of the picture of the prodigal son when he comes home. He's like a beggar, probably dressed in rags, starving to death. And the father representing God, he says, put the best robe on him. That's us. We wear the righteousness of Christ like a robe over our sin. We're not just given a clean slate. We're not just given a fresh start, a second chance for us to do it right. We're not giving, we're not given an empty box for us to put our treasures into, but rather what we are given is a treasure chest overflowing with the riches of our Savior, which are now ours. We are forgiven sinners. What a way for us to see our weakness. What a way for us to see our frailty, our evil, and also his strength and his grace. We are sinners who have been forgiven, and we are misfits who have been loved, so dearly loved. That's our second point. You've spent some time, even recently, over the years together, reflecting on our status as beloved. We marvel together. That this is how God refers to us time after time in scripture. We are his beloved. The same terminology used for a couple on the verge of their wedding day. The same terminology used between God the Father and God the Son. Applied to us, the church. In our reading, the apostle speaks of our unification with Christ in, frankly, graphic terms. Look at verse 15 and following. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The Apostle Paul, he's comparing our unity with Christ to the sexual unity between a man and a woman. We, as the church, were the bride of Christ. We look, fo- we look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. These are 
specifically romantic words being used. It was perhaps somewhat surprisingly the Puritans who were known mistakenly for being uncomfortable with love and physical manifestations of it. It was the Puritans who wrote most beautifully, just like Paul. They wrote even graphically about the love between Christ and the church. One Puritan, Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher in the 1600s, he wrote the following, God is a delicious good. That which is the chief good must ravish the soul with pleasure. There must be in it rapturous delight and quintessence of joy. Not how we would talk at all. About 50 years earlier, John Cotton, another Puritan, he wrote instructions to husbands and wives in that when they write letters to each other, he said that they should always be careful to remind each other in these letters that their deepest love must be reserved for their heavenly husband. When's the last time you wrote to your wife or you wrote to your husband, I love you, but my love is first for my heavenly husband. I hope you love me, but love him more. God must ravish our souls. God is our heavenly husband. These designations might seem so foreign, might seem a little uncomfortable to us, and yet this is exactly how scripture speaks too. If marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church, then surely this is true of all that comes with marriage rapture, the obsession, the marital bliss. We should not be shy of speaking this way about God, for he is not shy in speaking this way about us. But then the obvious question comes up, how does he show this love to us? What does it practically mean that we are God's beloved? We don't go to the movies together. We don't share a milkshake with two straws. We don't walk along the beach holding hands. We don't receive a diamond ring from our beloved. So what does he do? How does he show this love? We see this in question and answer 54 of our catechism. What do you believe? What do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Christian church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself, by his spirit and word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. This is our spiritual marriage. Simply put, our divine husband, our heavenly husband, does for us what any earthly husband should do for his bride. He chooses, he pursues, he rescues, he woos, he protects, and he lavishes. He chooses us, a ragtag group of misfits out of the whole human race. Now you might wonder about the term misfits. What do I mean by that? Why, why am I using this term? Well, I have in mind both the modern definition and the archaic definition. Look up this word, you'll see both of these as options. A misfit, the modern definition, is someone whose behavior or attitude sets them apart. A nobody, but worse than that, a rebel, an insurrectionist, a servant of Satan, a child of the devil. These are the kinds of people that God chooses that really should set us apart, that should set us outside God's family, shouldn't it? Yes, we we heard that in our first point. That list of horrific sins that would keep us out of heaven, that's us. Let me read this list again. And remind us that we are these people. We are the unrighteous. We are the sexually immoral. We are idolaters. We are adulterers. We are men who practice homosexuality. We are thieves. We are greedy. We are drunkards. We are revilers. We are swindlers. Or rather, we were. Because we were chosen. We were pursued. We didn't pursue him in our wretched state, but instead he pursued us. He rescued us with his cross. He woos us with his love. He protects us with his power, and he lavishes us with his grace. Even though we were misfits, in both senses of the word. The modern sense of the word, those kinds of people who really shouldn't be chosen, the kinds of people who stand out as being ones that we don't like, we don't want to associate with. And then, simply put, those who just don't fit. 
That's the archaic definition. It's not a fit. It's a misfit. So look around this church. Do we really fit together? From the outside, taking God out of it for the moment, do we really belong with each other here? There's people of all ages, from Elijah Ninkow at one years old, to Mrs. Keeneker at several decades past one years old. People of, of all education levels, those who are still in elementary school, those who have graduated high school, those with diplomas, those with bachelor degrees, those with master's degrees, those with doctorate degrees. People of all kinds of careers, farmers, salesmen, lawyers, mechanics, nurses, teachers. People from different countries speaking different languages. Yes, many originally from the Netherlands, but some from Asia, some from the Middle East, some from South America. Previously, we had members here from Africa. Misfits. Why would we ever belong together? It doesn't make sense. Except for God. Remember, we just set him aside. Let's undo that now. Let's bring him back in. What brings us together? Well, it's the one who gathers, defends, and preserves us. All of these things that I mentioned in terms of education levels, in terms of jobs, in terms of age, they all begin to fade away when we're brought together. All of those things don't really matter all that much in here. Does it matter that I'm educated more than some of you and less educated than others of you? Not really, because I am beloved. Does it matter that I am male and 47.5% of you are female? Not really, because I am beloved. Does it matter that I'm not super good at talking about cars or cows or Chapter 7 bankruptcy? Not really, because I am beloved. And we can all talk about that. We can all talk about how each and every one of us is the beloved of God. And the small things were misfits. A ragtag group with not all that much that brings us together. But in what really matters, we are united saints. That's our final point this afternoon. We are beloved and we are saints. Can anything be better? What this means, what, what these two designations really mean, what they tell us is that God loves us, even though we are desperately unworthy. And then it tells us that God makes us worthy. Beloved, though we are misfits, and saints united together. Not saints individually apart. We're saved individually, we are loved both individually and together, but we live only together. There was once a pastor who went to visit a member of his church that he hadn't seen in quite some time. It was a cold morning, and so when the pastor showed up, the man had the coffee hot and a roaring fire going in the fireplace. They both sat down, and the conversation started with some general conversation, some niceties. But then the pastor began to speak about why he was really there. But he didn't come with the stick, harping on church membership. This is what it means. You made vows, come back or else. But instead, he wisely took another route. He began to speak about faith. The member said he didn't need the church to worship God. He was doing just fine on his own, praying, reading the Bible, walking through the woods. He never felt closer to God. Pastor, let him say all of this without interjecting even once. Instead, what he did was he silently reached over and with the tongs, he took a coal out of the fireplace and placed it on the hearth. As the member continued to speak about his personal relationship with God, with no need for anyone else, his eyes kept glancing over to that coal. At first, it burned nice and hot, but as time went on, it began to grow cold. Having lost its connection to the fire, it eventually burnt out. So we're saved Individually, it is a personal thing, our salvation. You are not saved just because you are baptized. We're saved individually. We are loved both individually and together, but we live the Christian life only together. We've been gathered up together by Christ. Why would we seek to distance ourselves again? We've been gathered. Why would we seek to undo the important work of our Savior? It's not about where you're the most comfortable. If it was, then, then some would stay in the same place far longer than they should. Others would always be on the move. 
It's not about finding the best show in town. If it was, then this place would be empty. Our organists and pianists are talented. We are thankful for them. But we don't have an orchestra. We don't have a band. We don't have a smoke machine or a light machine. Though I'm thankful to God for the gift that he has given me to preach, I'm under no illusion that I'm the best around. There are more engaging speakers, Christian or otherwise. It's not about having the best show. It's not about anything else other than being where God has placed you. It's not about being served. It's about serving. As our catechism says, everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. Where has God placed you? Where has God called you to serve? Let's make this intensely and uncomfortably personal for a moment. This morning I announced that I would be leaving Cloverdale to serve in Yarrow. Would it have been more comfortable for me to stay? Of course. I know this congregation. I love this congregation. Would it have been easier to stay? Of course, the familiar is easier than the new. Is it painful to leave? Of course, I'm disappointing and frustrating people that I know and love by leaving, whereas I would be disappointing and frustrating relative strangers by staying. These things, though they have factored into my decision over the last several weeks, they're not the point at all. I, like all of you, I am duty-bound to use my gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members of the church. If it's God's will that I'm called to use these gifts at the other end of the valley, who am I to say no? I must obey my master. Our love for each other, our unity with each other, must not be based on anything but the fact that we are, all of us, forgiven sinners. Our love for each other, our unity with each other, must not be based on anything but the fact that we are, all of us, beloved misfits. That we are different in so many things. We are united. We are unified. First of all, to Christ, and secondly, to each other. These are the people, beloved. Turn to your right, turn to your left. These are the ones with whom you will share eternity. The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is not a resting place. The church is a people. We are the church together. And in his eyes, we're beautiful. Amen.
Let us now, as unified brothers and sisters, confess our unity with the true church of all times and places, with the words of the Apostles' Creed, put to music in hymn one. now have the opportunity to give of your gifts of thankfulness, after which we will sing of our unity also with those who have gone ahead. We are one group with that great cloud of witnesses, them and also us. Hymn 43, the stanzas 1, 2, and 6. May God bless your giving.
In our prayer this afternoon for the needs of the world, we'll lift up specifically those suffering in Nashville due to the shooting in the Covenant School there. Three elementary students and three staff members have been killed. We'll lift up the worldwide church as Chinese Christians have been detained seeking asylum in Thailand and as a pastor in Uganda was murdered by his Muslim relatives for his faith. Finally, we'll lift up our missionary and his wife in prayer as they will be traveling to China this week. Let's bring this before the Lord. Heavenly Father, gatherer, defender, and preserver of your church, we thank you for who you are and for who you have made us to be. Though we were and we still are sinners, we have also been washed. We've been sanctified. We have been justified. We are forgiven sinners. Though we were and still are misfits, we are also beloved. Through you, we are saints and we are united. I thank you for your rich blessings upon all of us. We see the blessings you've given us against the sadness and sorrow of this world where sin has invaded like diamonds on black velvet. Heavenly Father, we watched with horror this week as we heard about the school shooting in Nashville where out of hatred, out of fear, out of mental disorder, a young woman went into the Covenant School and shot three young students and three staff members. Lord, we cannot even begin to imagine what the parents, what the families, what the community is feeling. Lord, we lift this tragedy up to you and we lament. This isn't the way it is supposed to be. You are a good God. You are a powerful God. And we don't understand. Please bring your comfort to this community. I pray also for the worldwide church. As Chinese believers fleeing the persecution in China fleeing to Thailand, have been detained. And there is fear that they will be sent back and have to deal with the consequences of their flight for freedom. We lift up also your church in Uganda. As a pastor was murdered by his Muslim relatives because he converted to Christianity and was spreading the good news. Lord, finally, we lift up our missionary and his wife as they will be traveling this week to China. We pray that you will protect them that they will be able to do your work in a country where there is such hostility and opposition to your gospel. We thank you for the growth of the church, despite or even because of opposition and persecution. We pray that you will please continue to gather your church until one day the number is full and you return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. In closing... Let us lift up our voices and sing the church's one foundation, the stanzas one, two, four, and five. Hymn 52. Yes, uh, sorry about that. Yes, hymn 52. One, two, four, and five. Everything but three. I do like three, but we're only going to do those four.
church of Jesus Christ, waiting for the consummation, looking ahead to the church victorious, crowned with glory, receive the blessing of your triune God and go in his peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.